0: on an interpersonal level? Do you communicate in a positive or negative manner? Do you unknowingly project impatience or encouragement? Power or weakness? Are your words edgy or empathetic? In today's episode, I'll be speaking with Professor Philip Glenn about his research into the field of positive communications. He'll tell us about the movement towards nonviolent communications and teach us what role humor, laughter, and levity can play in interpersonal connections. So let's get serious about laughter as we learn more about the world of positive communications. This is Campus on the Common, the podcast of bright ideas from Emerson College's School of Communication. Broadcasting from Boston, Massachusetts, I'm your host, Emerson College alumnus and professor of communication studies, Mark Brody. Dr. Philip Glenn, welcome to Campus on the Common. I understand that you've been doing some research regarding positive communications. What exactly is positive communications? Uh, I teach a course, senior level course at Emerson
1: in positive communication. This is the fourth year I've taught it. Uh, My research doesn't cover all aspects of it, but laughter, which we'll talk about a little later. But essentially, you can think of positive communication. And let me say, I focus on interpersonal communication. So not so much mass or social media or so forth. Uh, Communication that enriches our lives. And you could kind of put that in, in some buckets, promoting joy in everyday life, promoting well-being, Promoting connections between people and,
0: uh, and justice. Could you give us an example of how that might manifest on a day-to-day basis?
1: As we think about how all those are reflected in talk, and I'm glad you ask about day-to-day basis because my commitment as a scholar is to find in actual interaction the practices of talk that promote these qualities of well-being and closeness and relational connection. We can look at actions such as greetings that launch uh, interactions between people, open inquiries, learning to ask each other questions without passing judgment on each other, speaking with authenticity from the heart, disclosing courageously when that's called upon, providing support to each other. Uh, My research is in everyday interaction and, and so I look at these forms of talk I've also got training in what's called nonviolent communication that embodies some of the qualities that we're talking about.
0: Interesting. Nonviolent communication. What would be an example of that? It's an approach to communication
1: developed by the late Marshall Rosenberg, and it has quite a following worldwide. There's a Center for Nonviolent Communication, cnvc.org. It is intended to re-engineer interpersonal communication to promote greater compassion and to keep us away from kinds of communication that project power dominance over each other, but rather to create relationships that are balanced in power. Putting down another person, let's say, belittling someone to try to get what you want, is a kind of exercise of power over another that blocks us from speaking from our hearts and recognizing other people speaking from their hearts.
0: So would that be consistent with dominating a conversation and sort of pushing an agenda or I'm trying to get a better feeling of of how this, how we might notice this on a day-to-day basis in a normal conversation.
1: So if we're talking and I, I start putting forward judgments of you, I've now kind of closed off the possibility of hearing you as a changing, growing, developing human being. It's very easy through language use to essentialize ourselves and each other. So NVC, nonviolent communication, encourages forms of talk that resist that temptation to essentialize people to uh, negatively judge and label people, including ourselves. So there are kind of four key practices to nonviolent communication, and that is first making observations simply learning to describe what it is you're perceiving that's going on in the world. You know, just to make up an example, I might notice that you shift in your behavior towards me, um, and an accusation or a judgment might be, uh, you're disrespecting me. NVC would teach me to go back to my observations and perhaps notice something like, you know, Mark, I noticed three times I started to say something and you've cut me off or you've interrupted me. I'm just making this up, but but you can see that starting from the description lets me kind of put my data out there for us both to work with. So first step is making observations. Second is expressing feelings, learning the vocabulary of emotions. So rather than my attacking you, right, you screwed up, I might say I'm feeling upset. And this is standard kind of conflict management uh, guidance as well. Third is then locating needs. All human feelings are tied to needs in the theory of nonviolent communication. So I learned to identify what needs of mine are not being met in the moment. Fourth step then is making requests. Requesting of other people that they do or say things to help us meet our needs or making that request of ourselves. So with practice, one can then put these tools into everyday conversation and create interactions that are more rooted in equality and less rooted in judgment of each other uh, and more about authentic expression of ourselves
0: i'm wondering how emotional intelligence might play a role with all this you could certainly
1: connect much of what we're talking about to what's considered emotional intelligence which is a a well-studied construct in psychology Daniel Goleman and colleagues started looking at it about 20 years ago. For me as a scholar and teacher of communication, I want to work with actual talk and so to call it intelligence puts it in the brain for me. And. That research in psychology has yielded many, many rich results. I prefer to try to find a way to talk about it that's
0: rooted in communication and communicative action. You know, that's fascinating. I'm wondering, what prompted you to start this research within positive communications?
1: Uh, it's a long journey. I'll try to make it a short answer. As an undergrad, decades ago at the University of Texas, I had a fantastic professor of Shakespeare who brought 20 students out to an old barn in East Texas for a summer to study and perform Shakespeare plays. We were not acting majors, we were students learning the texts through performance. As part of that, he had us read by Irving Goffman, the great sociologist, a book called The Presentation of Self in Everyday Life, about the roles we play in interactions. At the same time, we studied the theatrical metaphor, it's called from Shakespeare, you know, Jaques, in as you like it, famously says, all the world's a stage and all the men and women merely players. So this way of looking at human conduct was the opening of eyes for me. I was working at the time as a cook in a restaurant and noticing the servers coming back through the double doors from the smiles with the customers to the frustrations they were experiencing expressed backstage, which was the kitchen. So cut to several years later, that led me to pursue a doctorate in communication at University of Texas with another great professor, Robert Hopper, the late Robert Hopper. Uh, I told him I wanted to study play. In human interaction. And he quite wisely said, play is really hard to identify. When are people playing? When are they not? But laughter, you can pretty well notice when that's going on. How about studying laughter? Well, that launched me on now some, I guess, 30 years plus of being very, very interested in human laughter. My interest in laughter then led to, along with my training in nonviolent communication, to in recent years embracing this larger umbrella of positive communication.
0: When you think about laughter, when someone's laughing, they generally feel really good. My assumption, I'm not a neuroscientist, obviously, but my assumption is when that happens, there's probably dopamine, serotonin, oxytocin, depending on the situation, maybe some endorphins are released, and you physically feel great. I'm interested how a rhetorician perceives laughter and how you can magnify its role in communication to essentially maybe persuade or to alter a situation or to reduce negativity. I'm wondering if you could dive a little bit deeper into the role of laughter in communications.
1: Yes. The laughter you talked about that releases uh, endorphins and makes us feel good, we think of as the big hearty laughs when we just crack up over something. Those are also some of the most beautiful moments in social life when with others, we share laughter, we get laughing together. Those are moments that help us feel affiliated and closer and reinforce social bonds. As I have looked at laughter over the years, and I've studied it many, many times getting recordings of actual people talking, making detailed transcripts of those recordings. So I capture not only the words they say, but... Breaths, laughs, pauses. And if someone says, well, I don't know, I will transcribe, well, I don't know. Because it turns out that the shape and placement of laughs affects the work that they're doing in interaction. And laughs are interesting to study because they are underappreciated. They're versatile. They do a lot of different things in communication and they're ambiguous. They don't have a meaning on their own the way words can have meanings on their own. Uh, Laughter, when we hear laughter, when we notice someone laughing, we'll search for what the referent is. What's that about? Have you ever had the experience of walking up to a group of people who are laughing, wanting to join the group and wondering what they're laughing about? Or have you ever had the experience of all of them turning toward you and stopping laughing the moment you walk up? You know, I raise those as examples of how we interpret laughter. So there's a lot to learn there. Now in my research, it's become clear to me that you can kind of think of two big buckets for laughter. One are the hearty, shared, mirthful, affiliative laughs. Others, harder to notice but really common in everyday speech, are small little bits of laughter with which speakers pepper their speech. Well, I don't know. You hear that little well in there. If the big laughs are celebrating affiliative moments, the small laughs are often managing uh, moments of delicacy in talk, doing an action like uh, self-praise. I, I have some data of people in job interviews where the interviewees will often laugh as they're answering an interviewer's question. And those laughs will sometimes be rooted in a question that calls on them to tout their own qualifications. So the laughter can uh, mark that what you're doing is delicate. Uh, we see laughter sometimes with teasing criticisms put towards the other party or towards a third party, again, marking that I know what I'm doing is delicate, but I'm doing it anyway. Uh, laughter can sometimes mark that we're not fully committed to what we're saying, right? That there's a little bit of distance between us and that that which we are expressing. There's a host of, of accomplishments of laughter. This kind of comes back to your question about a rhetorical way of thinking about laughter.
0: It seems really complex. We're taking active listening to a whole new level that I had never really <laughs> thought of. And now I'm laughing. I'm self-conscious about yes, laughing. Right. Uh-huh. I'm transcribing you <laughs> as you laugh. I'm, uh, I'm wondering, in the process of doing your research, was, was there any kind of role for psychology and how laughs – are generated within our psyche and how they're used you just mentioned if you just given a few examples of how people subconsciously use laughs and job interviews and other things like that I'm wondering could you talk about any relationship between the two different doctrines or disciplines if you will the the study rhetoric and communication versus psychology
1: we've learned so much from psychology about laughter and humor and positive psychology is really where the whole positive movement started Social psychology, as I understand it as a sub-branch, comes closer to the study of interpersonal communication. For me, as a communication teacher and scholar, uh, I start with messages, utterances, turns at talk. I actually try not to get into people's heads very much. So in my research, I resist making claims about intentions, motives, feelings, in place of how are participants in interaction displaying through their talk what they're understanding. So if that distinction holds, I'll, I'll say it in a different way. I'm not saying X understands this. I'm saying X's turn at talk shows an understanding, right, so that it becomes a practice for communication. Uh, now that lets us, us gain enormous power on how interaction is organized, what we accomplish through interaction, how we construct actions, meanings, identities, relationships through talk. And as a teacher, I try to encourage my students not to go too much into people's heads. Let's see what we can learn about talk itself.
0: With that, would that mean it's more of a a passive observational approach you mentioned observation earlier where you're listening to so what somebody says and looking for key phrases key actions whether it's this form of laughter another form of laughter because that will identify a certain behavior or motive or something like that uh
1: yes I, uh, you you used the term passive and I'm thinking about how that might apply here. Well, I should separate the research I do from the teaching I do and the practice I do. But on the research side, uh, I use a method called conversation analysis. It involves, as I mentioned, making detailed transcripts and then analyzing how participants organize their interactions and through those what they accomplish. It does not involve typically, let's say, interviewing people to ask, why did you laugh there? Or what does laughter mean to you? One can learn a lot by asking those kinds of questions. For the kind of work I do, I'm looking at how talk is organized at a fine-grained level that most of us are not aware of. Uh, And I think we'd probably go crazy if we were aware of it because it's so fast and it's so detailed.
0: That's what I was struggling with. It's sort of how do we listen to a conversation Listen for these, these triggers, these cues, if you will, through laughter and other forms of positive communication, and then understand the significance of them while also trying to have a conversation. It would sound pretty, <laughs> pretty difficult to do. Yes. So, so I would draw a line between the basic research,
1: which involves repeated listening to recordings of talk with detailed transcripts, and that lets you slow down to really get at these micro-level practices. Versus, or in addition to the training I do, I also help train mediators, and I'm a mediator, and I teach students. As as real-time participants in the world, uh, we can't work at that level of detail. We can teach ourselves to shift key practices of talk. We can teach ourselves to speak less judgmentally and more descriptively. We can teach ourselves to use open-ended questions. We can teach ourselves to recognize moments when social support is needed and find a way to provide it so we we kind of shift the level of understanding to practices that people could recognize and uh, work into everyday life
0: so for a mediator or somebody that's really interested in, in mastering this art of positive communication what are some of the first encounters for somebody who's studying positive communications? What are the, some of the first epiphanies that they might come across through your classes?
1: I like that, the first epiphany. It sounds like a title of a book or something. Um, I think uh, a, a first epiphany for students in the, my classes is something like, wow, there's a lot more going on in a conversation than I ever realized. I just had that epiphany in our conversation. (laughs) Yes. From that epiphany, you can then go to, okay, in my conversations, what's happening that leaves me feeling not okay or wishing it had gone differently? And what moments seem to work really well, leave me feeling joyous, energized, connected? Uh, And how can I learn to do more of the latter?
0: In order to get to a place where you're actively listening, you're keenly aware, you're making observations relevant to the conversations, where do you start? It sounds very complex, but it sounds like something once you master it, it really is a, it's sort of a superpower that not only are you getting more out of a conversation, but people you're engaged with are actually actively gaining from that conversation and coming away from that in a more positive state of mind, if, if I'm understanding things correctly. So with that... Where does one start? I I recognize the importance
1: of the question you're asking. I think you you can begin to train yourself by isolating specific actions, practicing them and the practice often just like with a sport or any new skill or a language, it starts kind of artificially, it takes repetition. And then you try to re-embed that back in actual situations. So let's take, for example, paraphrasing back what someone says to you in a difficult conversation or in a conversation where it really matters that you get each other in mediation. This is a core practice. Uh, You can read about paraphrases. You can understand what they accomplish. You can then go through exercises where you practice paraphrasing with people, starting off trying to do it in a non-threatening kind of environment, So for example, one exercise I have learners do sometimes is pair off or in groups of three, take turns. One of you talk about a significant emotional experience in your life, positive, negative, your choice. The other person or persons practice paraphrasing back. So in other words, what you're telling me is, now the first times you do this, it feels quite artificial and kind of clunky. As you practice more, you develop some facility in doing that and you begin to notice moments in real life where that might be a helpful thing to do. It's not something you do all the time. It needs to be used judiciously. But when you really wanna make sure you're getting somebody or you really sense that they want to be, make sure they're being heard, a paraphrase can be enormously powerful. It also, by the way, slows down talk. If if you're saying something and I have this urge to argue back and tell you why you're wrong, if I slow down to paraphrase you first, that gives you and me both a little more space to stay with your idea.
0: But also seeing that it would, it would put both parties on the same level, that both feeling that they're being heard, that they're communicating. My assumption with a capital A is this is a nice place to start a relationship. If that we're both communicating, we're, we both feel that we're being heard. My assumption, again, would be that you're more likely to continue to open up about whatever could be the underlying issues relevant to a conflict.
1: Yes. I think that's often true. And that is one of the intentions of a practice like that.
0: Yes. You know, it's interesting. We we both teach conflict negotiation. You've been doing this for many, many more years than myself. And I've actually come to you many times for advice. And I see how positive communications could be a really effective tool with with conflict and negotiation. And I understand that you use this with mediators in order for them to be more effective at what they do. Is this a standard practice for mediators and and arbitrators? What I'm really wondering is, what's the future of positive communications? It sounds so important. And I'm really glad that at Emerson College, we have someone like you who's bringing this to our students and, and giving them the experience and the appreciation thereof. But is this a mainstream idea yet? And if not, what can we do to get it to that level? I guess hearing your question,
1: Mark, I, I want to break down what the it is because I'm I'm I've got some overlapping pieces here. Well let it rip. Positive communication is a kind of umbrella term for talking about a number of practices of communication that can do the things I talked about earlier, can enrich relationships, even bring greater joy into our lives and hence well being, promote justice. When you come to a specific skill like the practices of active listening paraphrasing being one of those, that helps a lot of roles and situations in life more than, than under what might be under the umbrella of positive communication. When we talk about listening skills in mediation and conflict, and you and I have both taught the course here in conflict and negotiation, we start with trouble, right? People are struggling, Because they're not lined up in what they want or need or there are misunderstandings or there's anger. And it's really important to use the best communication we can in those situations. Positive communication has a different starting point. It is what works well, what enriches life, what helps us feel better, connect better, which might help a conflict situation but also helps other kinds of situations in life.
0: I think I see where you're going with this. Instead of starting with a conflict, it's, it sounds to me like a, just a better way of being, a no pun intended, a more positive ap- approach to life through positive communications. I'm wondering, since you've been working in this field, what are some of the things that you've discovered that have most affected you personally? Studying talk and teaching these practices has
1: helped me listen better in everyday life. It helped me recognize how strong some of my internal barriers to good listening have been over the years. That is often my own anxiety, my own preoccupations have blocked me from really connecting when someone else is needing to express something. On the other side of that, it has helped me find better ways to express my needs and concerns without not, you know, giving in or saying things in ways that hurt and alienated people. Uh, so it, it's been very helpful in those ways. And, and I think out of those have come, you know, I want to say this with humility, but I think greater compassion for other people and especially greater compassion for myself.
0: So with our remaining time, I'm wondering if you could give us three takeaways for the audience.
1: Three takeaways. One is that each moment of communication presents us an opportunity. Now, a lot of human communication is utterly mundane. You know, you're, you're saying thank you to a clerk as you're buying something at a store. And we don't need to do anything more with that. But I would still say in the smallest of moments, there's a possibility for some kind of connection, some meeting of need, some opportunity to treat others with respect and regard and consideration. And then there are the bigger moments in life when we can, through a shift in our communication, turn a relationship, turn an interaction in a more positive direction. So there's this moment of opportunity is always there. And keeping that in mind for me is a kind of mindfulness that I think is, has great value. A second takeaway, take I would say, is um, you know, as much as possible, try to speak from the heart and listen from the heart. I think of the Tin Man and the Wizard of Hawes, right? (laughs) That is to strive for communication that has authenticity to it, you know, a congruence of self and expression. And if I think about love, not like romantic love, but love in a more general sense, to me that's one way that love looks in everyday communication. Try to look for moments of shared laughter and joyous celebration. Uh, and humor you know they're 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 like these little embers you notice that can be blown into sparks into biggest fires and keep us warm against the cold
0: you've been listening to campus on the Common. i'm your host mark brody in this episode, we spoke with professor of communication studies, Phil Glenn. His recent course include conflict and negotiation, positive communication, and professional communication. Professor Glenn conducts research analyzing interaction, especially conflict negotiation and mediation, employment interviews, and laughter in everyday talk. His most recent book is the co-edited Studies of Laughter in Interaction. Campus on the Common is a production of Emerson College School of Communication. Our executive producer is Dean Raoul Rice. Lucas Poyser is our producer and chief engineer. Chase Taylor is our associate producer. Campus on the Common provides an expert view into the field of media and communication through the field of academic experts and industry professionals from Emerson and beyond. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.